Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the Real Club Satellite Technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, I'm I'm good, thank you, Ed. I'm good. I'm just realising that Ben Affleck has probably taken knives out off of his letterbox favourites to be replaced <laughs> with uh, Hustlers. All of us wanted to get back with JLo after watching that, so, you know, I don't blame him. Um, but other than sort of uh, thinking about people's relationships, you know, of people who have no idea I exist. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm grand. Like the sun is shining in Scotland. The community that I'm part of managed to stop a dawn raid, so that's mm. pretty awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, so feeling good. How are you? Yeah, good. I've I've not been part of any international <laughs> news stories this week. <laughs> There's always next week, Ed. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure something will happen <laughs> but but no that was that was very very cool all, all the sup of the dawn raid and, and seeing all the people you know obviously very remotely from my place in the states um seeing all of that on on twitter and then seeing that you had been there for at least some of it you know that was all that was incredibly cool to see and it was very heartening you know seeing the the two guys get out of the van at the end of it and and seeing what um the actions of of, of your community all kind of like coming together to 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 save them essentially yeah that was just like such an incredibly moving thing to see yeah it's i'm very proud to be a part of a top bunch of people but yeah i'm i'm good i have spent a lot of this week watching movies by mike nichols because i've been reading mark harris's biography of him and i realized that you know I'd, i'd only seen about half of his movies and i hadn't really seen much of his work from the sort of the 70s through to the the mid 90s so that's been very interesting to kind of read to watch the movies and then read the behind the scenes stories and even though i think a lot of the movies that he made are kind of merely fine or that i wanted to like them more like i really wanted to like heartburn more because you know like i love Nora Ephron. um i think that they're yeah reading the story of her breakdown of her marriage through her kind of like acidic pen and all that you know seems like something i would really enjoy but the film you know doesn't quite work as well as as i would like it was still like quite interesting going through and seeing just how different mike nichols's films feel to a lot of films are made today if you consider like what mainstream cinema is now versus then like the idea that something like Working Girl, which was like a reasonably big hit, mm. um, you know, a movie that's just about a gal trying to get ahead <laughs> would be, you know, this kind of like really nicely shot, nicely put together, well acted, really funny, sharp sort of pseudo satire about capitalism would be like a fairly major hit and just like a really breezy, uh, accessible thing for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, like really kind of doesn't feel like that's the sort of thing that you would really see much of now. Like mm. a movie like that would be considered. I mean, that movie did get like six Oscar nominations or something, but like now it would be considered like, you know, kind of like an indie darling, something that would play at Sundance with that sort of premise. It doesn't feel like something that would get a major push from a studio. Mm. So yeah, just, just feeling 
depressed <laughs> about about the modern state of cinema. No, there's there's still there's still good movies being made, yeah. uh, and we'll be we'll be talking about one of them uh, later. But um, that's one of those things. I think if you watch the career of someone in its entirety, particularly someone like that who who spanned five decades, you know, and made good movies in very different genres and different terms for that whole time. Um, you do get a sense of like just how things have shifted over over the decades and you know for, for good and for bad mm. so we'll go on to the news for this week and the only news story other than benefer uh which is obviously <laughs> very important but um as you and i were discussing off mic hunter harris has that covered so i don't feel like we can add much more to her what she does in her brilliant newsletters um <laughs> and, and just her chaotic twitter feed which is always a joy <laughs> to read um the only kind of like story that really stood out to us was the sudden implosion of the Golden Globes, um, which has kind of been in slow mo. You know, it's that, that Hemingway thing about going bankrupt. It you know it ha- happens gradually and then all at once. In the sense that you know, uh, back in February, I think there was a there was an article about the finances of the uh hollywood foreign press association and the golden globes and this a general sense that thing it seemed to be a little bit of a slush fund for the people who were involved uh which got a lot of criticism and then there was some more criticism about the lack of diversity within the organization and calls for you know them to try and do better on that front and then stars like scarlett johansson kind of like calling them out on it uh, tom cruise returning his three golden globes basically saying you know like until things improve you know i don't want to be associated with them and then the, just this week nbc saying that they weren't going to be broadcasting the golden globes next year so it's just been this this really weird thing where the globes who no one has ever really taken seriously. They've always been a little bit of a joke, but they're a thing that people kind of have to talk about because they happen so soon before the Oscars and they're, they're you know, they're televised and so they're given weight just through proximity. It, there was kind of an air of, of invulnerability about them. It was like this thing that everyone agreed was incredibly stupid, but you just kind of think, well, it's always going to be there. And then suddenly, within a matter of, you know, a couple of months, it kind of feels as if it's maybe not over because obviously like there's been no thing saying the golden globes are not happening but if they're not being televised it's hard to imagine why any celebrities would want to go there <laughs> to to kind of hang out if they're not going to get the exposure and the attention um yeah it does kind of feel like there have been a series of blows that have kind of like knocked the legs out from under in a way that wouldn't have seemed likely or possible like six months ago yeah absolutely it's this weird kind of reckoning it's almost like the rights on the truth have come available and everyone in hollywood's just like snapping them up and optioning them because they you know in the same way that it's like why are there two films about alexander the great oh wait you know the way that development works and ideas and this kind of thing and now it seems like because we're not we've not been able to do the things that we're used to doing there is actually this chance to observe and reflect and often that is to sort of understand how deeply unfair the majority of it is. And it just seems like the image of the Golden Globes to me is like the really shitty, manipulative people at secondary school or high, mm-hmm. or high school on your side of the pond. And like, or like it's run by the kids who you saw on My Super Sweet 16. 
mm-hmm. it, it's yeah. like I'm going to have this really big party just so that I can sort of choose who I think's best. And everyone sort of knows this is a bit sad, but they can't help but get caught up in it because mm-hmm. it's still, you know, Hollywood loves to compare. And it's like, I mean, are people that shocked? <laughs> it's, it's the Golden Globes. <laughs> like, come on, it sounds, their name sounds like boobs. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why did we, why did, okay, and no one really took them that seriously. I don't think mm-hmm. it was kind of like a slightly novelty award. It's like I feel like the Razzies has more integrity, you know. Mm. Yeah, there was definitely always that sense of it's like the 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 the, the Oscars like tipsy aunt or something, you know. <laughs> it's just kind of having a little bit of fun. Uh, then and, gets and a little like bit inappropriate. The only reason, yeah. <laughs> The only things that anyone really kind of cared about it was, you know, if they got a good host. Like, that was the big thing in the recent years, like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler hosting it. And, and their stints as hosts were, like, so delightful and fun. And um, Ricky Gervais, you know, the first time he hosted it, you know, that was, like, very, very popular. And subsequent ones just kind of felt less funny and more sour. But, like, that was kind of the thing about it was, you know, it was this kind of, like, boozy party with all these these famous people and a host who kind of rib them in ways that you know could could be fun but then but then the actual awards like you know no one took them as like a serious arbiter of quality in the same way that they do the oscars or the baftas or any of the innumerable awards that come before or after it it was very much just this oh yeah that that thing that happens that we put on tv and everyone watches and then kind of like talks about the next day and i think that this year you know because and we talked about this you know about the oscars as well and how the oscars had like really bad ratings um, but like this whole year there's a certain impermanence to all the movies that came out like then none of them can't quite feel real people couldn't see them in cinemas and even if you know a lot of movies were seen by people and they liked there's still that sense of that's just this kind of like really diffuse thing it's not like you really feel as if there's a a spine to the year uh in terms of movies uh that award season kind of forms a part of you know it's one of the vertebrae of it and i think that especially hurts the golden globes which are already so ephemeral (laughs) if like they're just like if everything around film culture and tv culture feels just like so diffuse and ephemeral to begin with then when you just make it even more so and make it even more diluted then they become even more it becomes even more apparent it's like oh yeah these things really don't matter at all and all we were tuning in for was kind of to see the celebrities hanging out together and the host making fun of them but that also wasn't really happening with the ceremony this year because you couldn't really gather that many people together in a room so like once you strip away the glitz and the glamour and the sense of you know kind of going to uh you know a kind of a a dumb uh booze soaked party then you all you can really do is look at them with a kind of clear eyes like oh yeah these are a bunch of people that no one knows like what 68 journalists or whatever however many is that's part of the hf uh for uh, pa uh just trying to remember all the words uh, (laughs) the hfpa and then also thinking oh yeah most of them seem to be pretty white and male and also they've got a lot of money going around the place but it doesn't seem like it's going to anything (laughs) and just all these things suddenly coming to the surface once you take away the 
the glamour in uh, every possible sense of the word. Yeah, it just suddenly looks like there's nothing there, um, which uh, is, is, is true. <laughs> so we'll go on to the main topic for this week, and we're going to try something a little different now. Uh, we're trying to think of uh, different kinds of episodes for us to do on this show, and what we're kind of doing this week is kind of a a show and tell where... Emily and I are both bringing films to the episode to discuss to maybe try and find some commonality about them, but mainly because we just find them to be really interesting. And I'm going to start us off with a movie that I watched because it was on HBO Max as part of, of all things, the TCM Classic Film Festival, which uh, usually happens in Los Angeles and this year has this online component where various talks are being put on HBO Max and some of the movies showcasing the people whose careers are being celebrated um, were, were being put up on there and one of the honorees this year was Martin Short and so one of the movies they put up was Clifford his 1994 comedy where he plays a 10 year old child who menaces his uncle played by Charles Grodin a somewhat, no- a somewhat notorious movie came out, was reviled uh, showed up on a lot of worst of lists the year that it came out um, I read uh, Roger Ebert's review of it this morning in preparation for this because I I always find it interesting even when uh, I disagree with with Roger Ebert you know he wrote about so many of the movies it's always interesting to kind of see what his perspective was at the time and he wrote like a one and a half uh, he wrote a half star review of it which was very withering and very funny to read and yeah it was just like a movie that emerged into the light and was immediately screamed at by everyone. It's just like this real nightmare of a movie <laughs> where uh, a man in his, I guess he probably would have been in his 40s, plays a 10-year-old child with no real effects to make him look 10 other than, you know, camera angles to make him look short. Uh, but it's a movie that has developed kind of a big cult following over the years because it is aggressively odd and I think it is f- genuinely, I think, very funny in the same way that, like, adult swim shows are very funny where you're kind of like this there's something like very very weird about this concept that martin short plays a child with a a toy dinosaur called stefan that he takes everywhere (laughs) and who is obsessed with going to a dinosaur theme park and as soon as his uncle says that he can't go he just immediately starts doing everything he can to destroy his uncle's life in the most (laughs) brutal way that he can there's just something like incredibly engaging about that to me about how weird that concept is and the other thing that i thought was really interesting about it is that it really crystallizes something that you and i have have discussed several times recently which is what we've come to think of as the dune principle which is you know like david in david lynch's dune that movie starts i believe with like all this stuff with like giant aliens in jars and psychics and all this sort of stuff and it's all incredibly strange and alienating and it's one of those things where the movie sets out in the first 10 minutes and basically says this is what this is it's not going to be any different if you don't like this you're probably not going to like the rest of it and I think Clifford really is one of those movies where it starts off with such a, a sense of obnoxiousness to it because the character of Clifford is so annoying and just so awful to everyone around him. The, and the, the central premise, the central artificiality of Martin Short playing a 10-year-old boy is so off-putting that if you can't get past that, there's really no way you could enjoy like how grotesque the movie is. 
and on one on, on one level i really appreciate that about it i appreciate a movie that is just really ready to commit to just a strange idea and to just fully commit to the idea of just to kind of being the thing it's going to be regardless of whether or not that is going to work for audiences and so if someone came up to me and said you know if the ghosts of roger ebert came to me in the night and said how could you possibly like this movie it's terrible i would probably just have to nod my head and say I can see why you would say that. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I can see why you wouldn't like this. It is very strange. It reminds me of one of my favourite memes of the past, I think, yeah, let's just go year, where mm. it's a guy, I think, with just giving a thumbs up, and the text is, if you see me eating with a teaspoon, do not correct me. I know what I'm doing. I'm having a good time. and as someone who has always enjoyed using little spoons Mm -hmm. i that mean really spoke to me but i think that's it like there's something that you can't help but admire about a film that is so relentlessly what it is and Mm -hmm. just and again it's not kind of hitting the same note it's not it doesn't mean that it's monotone but that it just gives you such a good sense of like what you are in for like strap in and that's the Mm. thing about like the lighthouse which i thought was pretty rotten but i had a great time because it did not let up it was yeah it it was what it was and i was like oh cool then it's not for me and i was i was also intrigued by it even though i sort of knew what was going to happen and that it wasn't going to (laughs) change or develop i was still like i need to see this through because it's a film that i saw in the cinema when we could do that and I think it's weird that I've got into the really bad habit of like depending on streaming services where I can just go eh and give mm-hmm. up. So I think the first 10 minutes is now in like crucial to yeah. two films because a lot of people like some, you know, who's actually going to watch to the end unless we really hook them in. And I think Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar is a really good recent example of that because it is bonkers in the best mm-hmm. possible way. And it establishes itself as kind of like Napoleon Dynamite, but for middle-aged Midwestern women. And (laughs) because everyone is bonkers, it's not just Barb and Star, which I really like because I think sometimes it can feel quite cruel comedy that sort of points out to people who are different in some way. And I think it comes, you know, whereas... So instead of making that kind of like, look at these freaks and this is a freak show and you're okay, (laughs) you're not like these people. It's like, oh, everyone's a freak. Everyone is a freak in their own specific way. Mm. And I think when you um, suggested this idea to me, the film that immediately came to mind, and not just because I'd watched it recently, but was Black Bear. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Aubrey Plaza's recent um, release and her, I I want to say second collaboration with Lawrence Michael Levine or maybe it's not maybe it's the first one but Lauren uh, Lawrence Michael Levine um wrote and directed the film and it is quite literally a film of two halves it's pretty mm. much exactly 90 minutes and the film is split in two and it's not what i expected at all but the first half is arduous and mm. the worst kind of it's like your it's like the nightmare version of an art film you know, like an, yeah. like, a, like an American indie film. And we were sort of watching it and getting to the point where it's like, do we just skip this? Like, I'm really not enjoying this. This is really quite 
suspicious. Why is Sarah Gader in this? You know, I thought she had um, she had taste. And then it snaps and it becomes a completely different thing. And it's that real, oh, oh, I get it. Oh, that's really cool. What you've, I, I, I see what you did there. You've done it. I saw it. I like it. But if I hadn't, and, and I think it was just through sheer laziness that I was kind of second screening the whole way through it and didn't want to pick up the remote. <laughs> I was just like, we'll just stick with this. And I'm really glad I did. But, you know, because the temptation was, I've, you know, there's, always something else like this is the film she this is you this is the film she told you not to worry about kind of um to quote <laughs> another main um paraphrase ever so slightly and i think there's only i think i've walked out of two films in the cinema in my life mm-hmm. one was blue crush i think was it blue crush kate, the jessica albert surfing movie uh kate bosworth i believe oh I kate bosworth yeah if Jessica Alba turned up, it was later on. <laughs> it was the bit after I um after I walked out. But and, but those were the days where my cinema ticket was significantly cheaper. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a student ticket used to be about three quid in Odeon. Stunning. Um, and then it went up to a fiver and we were all horrified. But now it's like it's this it's this it's really the sunk cost fallacy isn't it because if i'm in a, in a cinema not really enjoying the film i will still sit there and watch the entire film because i like to think that i i really like being surprised and proven wrong but it's very rare that a film changes so dramatically at that late stage such as black bear like like that is a rare experience most of the time within 10 minutes i can tell whether i'm going to like this film or not and it's only like almost like the reverse of the Dune principle. I absolutely loved Source Code until the last five minutes, which was mm. like this really kind of like um, sort of uh, tacky setting up for a franchise. And I was like, oh, well, oh, that's a star gone. <laughs> like you were yeah. doing so well, quit while you're ahead. But yeah, because I just don't think, I don't think it's as captive an audience anymore. I remember reading a script. Uh, like a screenwriting advice book years ago, well before our our proliferation of, of digital media. And it said, you know, the difference between TV and film is that you can tell in the first five pages whether you're what whether you're reading a film script or a, a TV script. The TV script is likely to be incredibly punchy and fast-paced and a lot of shit will happen in those first five minutes because they're trying to get you not to turn over. Whereas in a film, it's like you've already made your choice. They don't need to convince you any further. So it can afford to take its time. But I think that's just completely out the window now. Mm, yeah. Uh, it was Into the Blue was the movie I was thinking of. Ah. It's a Jessica Alva diving movie. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, can see, you can see why I <laughs> make that early, early 2000s movies with blue in the title about water. But uh, yes, I think there's a lot of, of truth to that idea, the difference between film and television. I think that wisdom has probably shifted slightly in the age of streaming TV shows where you have the idea of like, you know, uh, now something like a Netflix show kind of takes a season to figure out what it's going to be because they produce it all before stuff get gets aired. And so, st- but definitely in terms of network television or like, prestige television of the early 2000s you feel about if you think about something like if you think about something like the shield uh one of my favorite shows 
the mm. pilot for that is nothing but relentless action. Yeah. Or the first episode of 24 is like, that's just nothing but action and like uh, perpetual motion. It's like, we have to keep moving this thing. We've got 24 episodes. Uh, we're, each one's going to be about an hour with adverts and we cannot stop moving. Otherwise this thing will die. It is a shark. <laughs> and that is like what I think a lot of television shows kind of operate on that principle. They are sharks. They need to keep going. And um, that's obviously changed a little bit, you know, like, no, I don't think anyone would necessarily suggest that like Mad Men is a shark in terms of uh, television shows, but that's a show where you do kind of feel like, okay, the first episode sets up a lot of the conflict. And even if it's a little more glacially paced than traditional television, it still kind of has to set everything up in the first episode. And I just, I feel like with movies, there is less of that. And that's where, like you're saying, the captive audience, the captive nature of it is what's really important with the film. Like you can have something that's a li- either a little slower, like just a drama that takes, you know, an act to kind of really get things going or a lot slower. If you're watching like, you know, a, a work of, of, of experimental art house cinema where it's just kind of like yeah we're going to take a quite a while for anything to happen or something may not happen but you know that's just you know that's what you've paid for um and i do think in the case of black bear that's a movie that i think if i hadn't known there was going to be a big shift mm. at some point and i didn't know exactly what the shift was going to be what for me is i just knew that like you know what start what the movie starts out as is not what it ends up being um had i not known that i think that would have been a movie that i would have struggled to make all make uh make it through all the way because as i was watching it that first half it does feel like derivative of like um something like queen of earth the uh, Alex Ross Perry movie from a few years ago which is itself very derivative of like roman polanski um mm. Or the one I love, the movie with Elizabeth Moss and um, Mark Duplass um, that came out a few years ago. Similarly, like, you know, oh, a small number of characters at a cabin, uh, you know, like, and things happen, you know, like, it has that sort of quality to it. Or it feeling like a slightly less successful version of the comedy, the um, Tim Heidecker movie from, mm. oh, what's his name? Rick Alverson, real quick, yeah. Rick Alverson movie. Which I think is great and like is is a just a fucking bleak movie. Yeah. <laughs> an incredibly bleak movie. And um the first half of Black Bear isn't it doesn't kind of have the convictions to go that bleak. So it kind of ends up in this weird middle state where you're like, it's kind of kind of dark, but you know, and, and, and intense, but it's not quite uh not quite as, as intense as it could be. And then, you know, forty five minutes in, like things reset and it becomes this entirely different thing and it becomes this really kind of energetic funny tense version of itself and it's got kind of like this meta layer that's really fascinating and it allows Aubrey Plaza to kind of like do a lot more different stuff than what she was doing in the first half and Sarah Gavin as well you know gets to Mm. do a lot of different things and I like the shift in uh, Christopher Abbott's character from the first half to the second I mean he's still a piece of shit in some ways but he's like kind of like he's he's a different kind of piece of shit Mm. (laughs) in the second one to the first one and I really admired, like, how well it handled that shift. And, and, you know, the confidence I think it takes to make a first half that, you know, could be that kind of, like, uncomfortable and alienating and just kind of not necessarily firing on all cylinders to then suddenly make the switch halfway through that makes you completely recontextualise what you've just watched. And, yeah, it takes a great deal of confidence in, in yourself as a director and a writer to kind of 
follow that path, I think. Absolutely. And I think you're right. If I'd known that a twist was coming, I probably would have invested in Black Bear a bit more within the first 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. I th- yeah. I think it doesn't give you any sign or sense that something like that is coming either. So it was, mm. it was quite a, a genuine surprise and a delight and I'm still thinking about it. I, I don't I don't think it's an incredible film. I think you're right. Like the performances are great. And I think it it's such an interesting film purely to show how most films actually get made. Um mm-hmm. yeah. and like the the sort of camaraderie of the crew, but also the kind of desperate, weird dynamics and stuff that's quite emotionally raw and and the way that sort of groups of people behave in in sort of traumatic situations and are I think it has a you know a a much deeper resonance and I do think it is really quite a a bold film that I think mainly due to the pandemic hasn't really got the prevalence that it would have done because it was one I think it was Sundance that it did really well 2020 so in about like January so a couple of months before and I remember hearing sort of buzz about it but it's kind of snuck out now so I hope it gets more eyes on it because it sort of reminds me a little bit of a, a different angle on filmmaking, like The Assistant, but mm. in, a, in a sort of different personal way. And I think it's a group of people who, you know, because Aubrey Plaza has made several films with her partner, Jeff, is it Boehner? Uh I think that's right, yeah. Yeah. So it's clearly coming from a place of lived experience. And I think it's all the richer for that even though it's not a, like, direct um, autobiography. You would hope not. You would really hope not. Really hope not. It's always nice to see Christopher Abbott again as well. I think he's... Um... Mm. I, I I always enjoy him. I think he's a terrific actor, but I do find it very distracting that he is... He looks so much like Kit Harrington. Oh, yeah. That's a real... Um, is this Dermot Mulroney or... <laughs> I always forget who the other one is. Uh, Dylan McDermott. Yes, that's it. That's it. Uh, that's yeah. That's a real. Um, and again, like Samara Weaving or Margot Robbie, if you squint, who knows? Oh God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I spent a lot of. Uh, what was the movie she was in? Like two years ago, the Samara. Ah, uh, it's going to bother me. Like I can't remember the name of it. Where she was being hunted by a rich family. Oh. And she was getting married into the family. I I I watched it within the last year, and I can't. Ready, ready or not? Yes. Yes, the the posters for Ready or Not when they first it's like oh cool Margot Robbie's in our room. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh wait, no, she isn't. <laughs> it's someone else entirely who also is very talented and very good. But yeah, the similarities between them is yeah, it's just eerie. We needed a new one because the Amy Adams Isla <laughs> Fisher one stopped after uh, Tom Ford mm. cast them in Nocturnal Animals, and it was like I don't feel like this is in on the joke. <laughs> it feels a bit mean. <laughs> like. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, of course, the main difference between Christa Rabbit and, and Kit Harrington is Christa Rabbit has like more than one facial expression. Yes, yes. And he's not married at Tory, so. <laughs> yes. I was just thinking the other day, like, I don't think it would have helped Game of Thrones in the long run, but I think at one point there was, they weren't sure if Kit Harrington or Richard Madden were going to like sh- swap roles, uh, you know, like they were going to cast... Richard Madden as, as Jon Snow and Kit Harrington <clears throat> as um, Rob. And I was just thinking in the long run, it's like, even if 
the other storytelling decisions that were made on that show happened like the later seasons of that show that would mainly about Jon Snow would have been really would be so much more fucking bearable if they had cast Richard Madden in that role <laughs> like he's just so much more compelling an actor and so much more charismatic he was really that was you know of the the various long-term casting bets they made on that show that was one they really they really lost out on <laughs> by thinking oh yeah Kit Harrington will be able to shoulder the last like two or three seasons of this show guys I think we should kill John and then bring him back to life because then we can just point to the fact that he's probably still a bit dead inside <laughs> that mm. that'll that'll uh, that'll carry he's meant to not <laughs> emote yeah exactly <laughs> his face is frozen in rigor mortis all the time that's why <laughs> that's why he's bad in in also in terms of um to get back to uh Clifford <laughs> uh, and, and what you were saying earlier about Barb and Star, I think that's one of the things as well that I really like about Clifford and about comedies that are willing to be that grotesque is that they do like they're willing to just be like oh yeah everyone in this movie is kind of insane in some ways like the only person in Clifford who I think comes close to a normal character is Mary Steenburgen's character mm. is uh, Charles Grodin's fiance. she is the reason that that um, Charles Grodin agrees to look after uh, Clifford after he nearly causes a plane to crash. Um, that also is probably one of the reasons why it's kind of off-putting is like literally the first thing that Clifford does is like in- he basically nearly causes the plane he and his family are on to crash so that he gets banned from the airplane so he could go to Los Angeles to hang out with his uncle. Um, Mary Steensburgen is, is unsure about marrying Charles Grodin because she's like, you know, you don't seem to like kids and want to have kids one day. So he agrees to have his nephew hanging around them so he can demonstrate, see, I like kids, you know, I can be around kids. And so she is always kind of slightly off to the side and doesn't see just how insane um, uh, Clifford is and the, the, the terror that he wreaks upon everyone in his life. And, but everyone else in it is just kind of like this real grotesque. And I think that's the sort of thing that can be incredibly alienating for an audience and can be really, really off-putting is if you're watching a movie and you're like, I cannot relate to any of these people. Mm. They are all so completely strange and so bizarre and they don't uh, exhibit any real baseline of humanity that I can connect to. But at the same level, like if you're happy to watch a movie that's just that completely strange and bizarre and exists totally in the realm of kind of like grotesque over-the-top comedy then that can be the thing that's really appealing to you it's like you know oh yeah this is like totally this is all artifice this is clearly you know just like some weird fever dream (laughs) that someone's cooked up and somehow managed to render into light on the screen and again that to get back to like the ghost of roger ebert thing like that's the exact sort of thing where you just have to nod along and say yes it is weird yes it is very kind of like alienating and it is just like extremely off-putting but um that's kind of why i enjoy it and that's also where you can kind of like see maybe not a direct lineage like i don't know if if tim and eric kind of like sat around and watched clifford a bunch um but it wouldn't surprise me but like that that's where you can see like the lineage between that and a lot of the kind of like weird alt comedy or anti-comedy of the last couple of decades is where you know a bunch of people you know went to adult swim or went on youtube and would just said we're gonna make stuff that is just not at all relatable and but makes us laugh and 
hope that enough people find that funny for us to kind of do this as a career, uh, which really pays off, I think, in low budget uh, cable <laughs> and kind of like online media, but probably doesn't pay off in like a me- medium budget studio comedy <laughs> that is kind of meant to be put out as some sort of mainstream entertainment. I really need to watch Clifford. I didn't get to see it before we were talking about it and everything you're saying just makes me want to watch it more. And it feels like mm. the sort of premise that is like clickbait. Like I I don't right. I don't understand like cuz Charles Grodin is just brilliant at being like um professionally vexed. Yes. He's never been more vexed. <laughs> oh, great. And Martin it, Short playing a 10-year-old boy. I mean, what 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 were they thinking? Was it like this is going to be a sort of heartfelt, zany family comedy? I can't imagine that that was what they were thinking. I did think they thought this would be a really funny thing to do. And then it it just falling into an uncanny valley for most people where they're just kind of like, that's Martin Short. He's not a child they're not really making him look like a child he's just a man he's just a man who's being made to seem short and no one being able to get past that in the same way that you know no one can get past you know the cold dead eyes of like all of the cgi characters in final fantasy the spirits within or whatever and i feel like that's that's what kind of like kneecaps them i i can't because also in terms of the, the question of it being like a family comedy like there's nothing in it that i think is uh, that wouldn't get it any like higher than a PG if you were to kind of like show it. Like I don't think there's any swearing or nudity or anything, but the entire vibe of it is so weird. Like the the way that the, the unchecked cruelty that Clifford visits upon his uncle to the point where the final act of the movie is his uncle kind of putting him on a ride at dinosaur land and then continually turning up the speed until the point that it's going dangerously fast and he nearly kills him. It's just, there's just something about it that you say you would not show this to a child (laughs) unless you were, unless you knew they were a very strange child (laughs) and that they would enjoy this. Like it's not something that you would show to just like generally anyone you would have to, it's, it's, it's a very specific kind of, upsetting tone in some ways again which is i think is why it's found like a real cult audience in the year since because you know people find it and like oh man this is fucking weird <laughs> and i'm really into it and there's obviously like enough people out there for it to eventually become you know not a mainstream success but certainly enough people who will have watched it and just have it as a common reference point where someone will say oh man i love clifford and you'll be like yeah it's it's really weird but it's really fun yeah, and I, I can't imagine that they necessarily thought it would have mainstream success, but they maybe, or they would be like a big family, like four quadrant comedy, but that it would maybe find purchase amongst, you know, SCTV fans and fans of just kind of like weird comedies in general. Because, mm. uh, and then just when it came out in the sort of the mid 90s, there just being no appetite for that or, you know, not enough of an appetite for it to succeed um similarly to another kind of misbegotten comedy from like 94 something like cabin boy the uh chris elliott vehicle which is also very funny and also very strange and not something that mainstream audiences would ever gravitate to but which kind of got a big budget and a studio release because um no one really knows what will work with comedy i guess like you'll, you'll just kind of give it a go and uh, you know Wayne's World had been a hit a few years earlier and that was kind of like a weird offbeat movie so let's let's give a go let's see what Chris Elliott another kind of like tv comedy staple mm. can do with a bit of a budget and a weird idea 
uh, and Clifford predated uh, Wayne's World because like, that was made in 1990 and then didn't come out for four years, which also probably didn't help its reputation. Um, but I'm just, I'm sure there was some, like, you know, I don't know, Bill and Ted or something would have come out for There's some, like, offbeat comedy had come out in, in recent vintage that made people think, yeah, we'll, we'll take a chance on this. Like, it's a kind of a weird idea. But, you know, two teens travelling through time and kidnapping napoleon also seems like a weird idea (laughs) and that works so let's give it a go let's give it a try yeah to be fair when you boil things down to log lines and and premises you really cannot tell which are gonna turn into critical and commercial successes Mm, yeah and and, um take it back to what i was saying about like the mike nichols book that i've been reading that's one of the things um in that book that's quite interesting is like it will address like instances where Mike Nichols took on a role, a, a movie, just because it seemed like, oh yeah, this seems like this seems like good on paper and like a commercial hit, and not something that he necessarily cared that much about. And um, you end up with something like Regarding Henry, which is like a truly terrible movie um, that just doesn't really seem to commit to anything. Whereas, uh, you know, even something like Wolf, which is also kind of like a super weird movie that he made around the same time, you know, at least it's kind of like trying for something different and strange and sort of succeeding on those odd terms as opposed to just being like i don't know like a, a, a harrison ford gets shot in the head and becomes a good person yeah that's a movie let's let's do that <laughs> like you know like that there's there are you know there's no kind of algorithm or formula to what will end up being a good movie um at least not that i know of <laughs> yeah. otherwise, I, otherwise i'd use it myself <laughs> oh yeah yeah we always yeah this one weird trick. I was thinking about other films that I think really adhere to the Dune principle. And mm. I realised they're all sort of bunching under one director, which is Gaspar Noé, because I think Enter the Void. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, the- that, that's a guy who sets his, sets his stall out. Yep. Yep. Like, immensely uh, stressful and tense, but also... Mm strangely invigorating and life-affirming by the end of it but also yeah just bizarre but I feel that way about like most of his films yeah and I don't know whether I guess it does sort of like the Dune principle really does apply to things like Dune you know things films that are simultaneously epic and obscure or or just kind of pretty experimental Mm. and a bit wacky um because it's rare that you'll see a film that will change. I guess I guess when you watch, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, a normie film <laughs> in the mm. first ten minutes. You you it's kind of like the film is sort of teaching you how to watch it. Yeah. Because if you compare it to obviously like Dune was made to kind of capitalise on the success of Star Wars. And if you look at like Star Wars, you know, it has um it's a weird world with weird aliens, but the weird aliens don't really show up until a little ways in so you get a, a kind of like a scroll at the start which explains the basics you have two point of view characters who are odd in their own way and like not something that audiences in 1977 would necessarily be used to but they're recognizable and you can understand what they're doing where uh, and you know they can kind of ease you into the grander story whereas dune like right at the start it's like okay you kind of get the 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 bit at the start where um, not Marsha Gay Harden, whoever whoever's the lead in that movie. I forget who the female lead in Dune is off the top of my head, but Virginia Madsen. 
that's it. Yes, Virginia Madsen, where she's at the start and she's mm. talking to camera and she's like kind of meant to be explaining the movie, but in a way that only makes sense if you have already seen the movie <laughs> or if you are if you've read the book. Um, so it's actually not that helpful as far as an intro goes. And then straight into like uh, off-putting visual design that's kind of very goopy and dark and uh, you know like is introducing like concepts that aren't particularly well explained and all of this stuff is going on that's just like incredibly weird and even if there is stuff in Star Wars that is like super off-putting and strange you know it's always couched within it's always kind of like led up to with stuff that's really accessible and, and Dune is like, and movies that kind of adhere to quote unquote the Dune principle. They're movies that just straight up are like, yeah, we're not really going to make that many concessions to people. They're going to either like this thing or they're not. And yeah, there is, there is something admirable about that as a, as a, as a vision, even if it's maybe uh, something that pretty much will doom movies like that to kind of like very marginal success. But even if that kind of success or that recognition is passionate in some way because obviously there's lots of people who really really love dune and there's lots of people who really really love clifford you know like there there is something to be said for pursuing a vision to the fullest extent (laughs) regardless of whether or not most people would actually like it so we'll go on to our final segment, which is Shot Reverse Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? It's not anything particularly new in that I feel like everyone is uh, recommending this, but it's entirely deserved. Like every so often the hype machine, <laughs> the hype machine and broken clocks, etc., etc. Um mm-hmm. Detransition Baby by mm. Tori Peters. I, I keep I keep forgetting that I've recommended it to so many people, including yourself, Ed, <laughs> because I just feel like such a sense of wonder as I'm reading it. And she reminds me an awful lot of uh, Iris Murdoch, who's one of my absolute favourite writers, in that she manages to observe her characters with such emotional insight, but that doesn't make everyone feel godlike. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it like there's a there's real sort of like journeys and they're all very flawed and real and I feel like I know them and it's just stunning and it is it is a book of now that I think will become very quickly a sort of a classic um so yes that is Detransition Baby by uh, Tori Peters yes uh I really need to read that um literally everyone who's read it says it's great and i've seen nothing but people uh, tweeting about it seemingly for the last like four or five months so yeah definitely need to get on that i am going to recommend a video game that i've been playing uh, a, a fair amount this week um called loop hero which is uh, available on steam is where i played it and i think it's only like 15 dollars. it is very intuitive to play and very hard to explain basically uh you have a character who walks around a set loop um you don't control the movement of the character the character moves on its own accord but you control the environment around it you drop in like um different structures that then produce certain enemies and then you also get to 
uh, you know, when you defeat those enemies you get different gear that you apply to your hero who then gets stronger and then as you do more loops the enemies get tougher and then eventually you fight a boss and then you go or you die and if you die you go back to this kind of weird void where all these other characters are going and they're talking about how the world has ended and you're all just kind of like hanging out in this void and trying to remember the world that no longer exists it's incredibly strange and existential and funny in those kind of like story bits but the basic loop uh is kind of very compelling each time as well like you know each one each game uh takes about 15 to 20 minutes to complete uh depending on uh whether or not your character dies and there's just something really really enjoyable about the management of it of like trying to make sure that your character gets has the best gear possible and trying to judge you know you know do you want higher attack speed or higher defense and things like that and just trying to reach the end of each loop to uncover a bit more of the story or to build up your base which gets you certain perks and i've just found it to be like just a really fun interesting thing to kind of like you know if i have if it's a quiet day at work you know just kind of like fire it up and play 15 minutes do a a loop of the game and it's got this really nice mix between kind of like an idle game and a strategy game at the same time and i've really been enjoying it and it's yeah it's just really really compelling it's one of those games where like for the first hour or so i was like oh, i'm not sure what to make of this this is like such a weird idea and then you know i'm 12 hours into it or whatever and i'm like yeah this is this is pretty fun i'm really enjoying this so that's uh loop hero which as i said you can get through steam and is uh well worth checking out if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player and spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend it to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me 